Hear the word of the Lord. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where, then, is your your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here and Uh, Today we continue uh, our series in the book of Galatians, uh, considering the nature of uh, freedom from manipulation, Galatians chapter 4, verses uh, 8 through 20. Uh, For for whatever reason, the men in um, my family, uh, we've had a variety of challenges whenever we were young with um, speech and reading, things of that nature. Um, For a period of my childhood, I, I had to have some extra assistance um, my uh, younger brother as well, uh, both, of my, uh, both of my sons as well have had, needed some extra assistance in, in the realm of um, speech for a variety of reasons. And at this point in time, we've kind of been through the process enough to know that, you know, in the initial stage, you, you have to, there has to be, a, you know, observations and assessment to try to figure out what are, what are the factors that are, that are playing into uh, to the delays. And... Um, you know, so there, there could be, you know, potentially cognitive delays, you know, something with um, the brain. There could be um, something with um, the muscles in the cheeks. You know, there can be um, a variety of things that go on. Um, what I, one of the things that I've found consistently in my family is there are, uh, there are relational or social factors, okay? So my youngest is two, and he, he has the privilege I want, want that to be known. He has the privilege of having two older siblings. Um, with that being said, there's, there's oftentimes a trade-off um, whenever you have a couple of older siblings and you're two and you assume that the world belongs to you. Um, and, and then whenever, so the sins of the fathers pass down to their children. And, and, and in my heart of hearts, I, in my home, I want peace, peace, Nothing but peace. Okay, I just want peace at all costs, and so I, uh, you know, I can easily give in to a two-year-old and just be like, "Look, I'll just, I'll do whatever you want. You know, you have all my money, anything. Just, just give me peace. That's the only thing that I want." 
And that's fine, but what it can do is it can, it can delay the, the, the development of the ability to speak clearly. And so, so at some point in time, dad has to change his um, peacekeeping peace ways, peace-seeking ways in some way. Um, and, and I've got to change the way that I do things. Uh, and then in the course of time, lead the family in another direction for the sake of, of, of my son, because I have a tendency to envision, I have a tendency to envision problems. Uh, and so, you know, so I'm like, look, we've got to make sure that he can speak. I mean, could you imagine on his wedding day? You know what I mean? Because his, 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 his older siblings will speak for him. You know, if he comes up and kind of grunts at him, he's like, oh, I'm like, what did he say? And, you know, my daughter would be like, well, he believes that the recent drop in oil prices are a combination of, <laughs> of economic, political, and spiritual factors, Dad. I'm like, is that what you think? Like, yeah, and he kind of goes off. And I'm like, wow, I don't know. How did you get that from, you know what I mean? And so it's like, you know, I'll envision like on his wedding day, you know, he's just like, uh, ooh, you know, and then we pass it to his sister. And she's like, with this ring, he, the weds, you know, or something like that, which is possible. I mean, we could probably pull that off. It'll just limit him in life on a variety of, of ways. So it's like, look, we got to do things different for his sake. And so, so I made a kind of a personal condition. Um, he likes mandarin oranges. Um, you know, mandarin oranges, as God has created them, they come down in the can and uh, they have to be opened. <laughs> he also likes... Uh, Oh, they, sometimes they call them cuties. The Southerners call them clementines is what they call them. You have to stress the I. But, um, but one way or another, whether God's made them with the can or, you know, or just the peel, you've, it's my opportunity to make him say, open. Now, I don't, he's got he's to try something, okay? And so uh, <laughs> there's probably a speech and language pathologist here who's just like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? You're so barbaric. But it may be true. But, um, but anyway, so the first time he kind of comes to me and <clears throat> brings this thing and to his father and wants his dad to love him unconditionally and open it for him, I say, say open. And he, he just drops his head. He just goes, nah. And then he just kind of like starts shrugging his shoulders and then he just runs off. Like, okay, well, clearly he doesn't want it that bad. And so, and then his advocate comes, his older sibling. <laughs> and my daughter's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I, I asked him to say open. I want him just to mouth something. And she's like, no, like, we just want him to be happy. We don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't want all this fuss. And I'm like, okay, well, he's happy. You want him to be happy now, but like, we, we can't have this, you know. And so, uh, you know, things are going to change in this household, you know, kind of thing. Uh, uh, not, I mean, kind of, but I didn't slam my fist anyway. Um, so, so anyway, uh, he, he now kind of gets the routine, you know what I mean? He brings whatever to me, say open, and he's like, ah, pfft, you know, something like that, which is, that's fine. We've, we've got to make, pro you got to start somewhere, right? And so... Uh, anyway, so it's, <laughs> it's, my, my relationship with him is not entirely conditional, but I'm creating kind of a temporary condition for the period of time. Now, now think about that. I'm creating a, a condition for a period of time with the purpose of making his life better later on. Here is the condition. Say this, and dad will respond by opening, 
uh, and I'll give you what you want. A temporary thing. I don't plan on doing this forever. But let's just imagine for a second if I, if I never remove the condition. Let's imagine for a second if I never re- remove the condition, which is you need to say something to me to get me to respond to you. What would his life look like? How would that affect him? Meet my condition in order to get me to show you that I care about you, in order to get me to to give you some sort of love. How do you think that would affect him? In that moment, the condition has started to affect him immediately. Now, granted, in some ways, it affected him because he didn't understand. But just imagine if I never removed that condition. I never removed the fact that I say, you've got to do this. It affected him personally, but, but did, you also, did you also remember that it actually started to affect other people? It wasn't just him that it affected. It, it immediately started to affect his, his older sister. That conditional nature where, where relationships and, uh, are based on conditions and contingencies and things and duties and demands that you must meet it doesn't just affect that one person. It immediately starts spreading out. It starts spreading out horizontally to start affecting relationships in other ways. You know of somebody, is there anybody in your life to where you must say the right thing to get them to show you that they love you? Or you must do the right thing. You must perform in some way. And does it just affect you? Or does it affect other people around you? What kind of relationships do we want? You ever asked yourself that? What do you want your relationships to be characterized by? What, what, what do you want them to look like? I believe that, that people want relationships that are characterized by being known as they are, being seen as they are, and being loved as they are. No conditions. Total openness, total transparency, total vulnerability. Well, where do we go to find such a relationship like that? Well, I believe that the scriptures teach that there is a God who exists, and he sees us as we are. Sin, suffering, scars and all, and he knows us as we are, and he chooses to love us. And when we embrace that truth, it it provides a degree of freedom. It provides a degree of freedom in one way of the way we relate to God. There's now no more conditions. I mean, the only condition that we met is that we sinned against God. And it's God who takes the initiative to open up a way so that we might be able to approach him by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And so now God's love is received. It's not earned. It's received by faith in Jesus Christ. And that provides freedom. And that freedom is not only shows itself in the way that we relate to God, that we can call him our good father. We can pray to him. He invites us to come to him in our times of need. But it also starts spreading out horizontally. And so last week, um, Pastor Jonah showed us that this 
that this freedom that the, that the grace of God provides for us, it has, it has sociological, it has really big implications. And here in the passage before us today, we see that that freedom, the freedom from conditions, start having, it doesn't just have big picture implications sociologically, but it has interpersonal implications in our everyday lives. And Paul here in the verses before us, he's concerned that the, that the Galatians are drifting away from the free grace of God that is found in Christ, and it's causing relational damage. So as they drift from the truth of the free grace of God, it starts playing out horizontally in their relationships, and it causes relational damage. And so it's with these things in mind that I pray. My main point, the one thing I want you to get from today, is that because we are known by God, we can love others with open hearts. Because we are known by God, we can love others with open hearts. Now, there are three ways that I believe that plays out here in this passage. First is because we are known by God, it removes the need to save ourselves. Second, because we are known by God, it opens us to the needs of other people. And then third, because we are known by God, it moves us to labor for other people. So Paul here um, in this section, he gets very personal. He starts talking with the Galatians about his personal story and history with them, the times that he spent with them, how he come to know them, and what they originally believed whenever he first um, entered into their life and they into his. And what he says is, is he says, where you're at now is not where you used to be. Look here with me in Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Are you observing special days, months, seasons, and years? I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So here Paul talks about his history, his story with them. And he says, look, let's not forget where it is that you came from. He talks about them in their non-Christian state originally. And what was that like? Well, notice there in verse 8 that he said that you, you did not know God and you were enslaved by those that were by nature not God. What's he talking about? The Galatians were religious people even before they became Christians. They were religious. And in, in, in where they were at in the Roman Empire, there were those people um, where they would, they would worship um, images and idols. Images and idols that they made with their own hands or images and idols that they bought from other people who made them with their own hands. Things that were made, created things that were made of wood or stone or clay or metal. Now, there were some in that day that did that. There were others that they still worship created things. They may not have used an image or an idol, but they worshiped the sky and, uh, and the trees and the streams and the ground, things of this nature, but it's all still created. So you're worshiping things that by nature are not God. 
Now, some of them worship the spirits, the demonic spirits, that, that may have controlled those images or controlled those idols. But regardless, whether you, you worship the idol or, or the thing that the idol signified, which was the sky or the ground, or you worship the spirit or whatever it was, you're worshiping something that is created rather than the creator, God Almighty. And and notice there that Paul assumes that the non-Christian religion, it, it has an enslaving effect. It, it pulls people down. It, it actually shares a message. And that message is, is, you need to save yourself. You need to do something. You can't just sit there. So come and bring these alms. Come and say these prayers. Come and do these things. And if you don't get it right the first time, do it a second time. If you don't get it right a second time, do it a third time. And you need to keep on moving forward. All non-Christian religions share a message over and over, and that is you need to do this on your own. And in the scriptures, it creates a deluding message. And so what happens is, is when the, the truth of the gospel is presented, at times it seems offensive oh my gosh, this isn't what I'm used to. I, I can't believe that you're saying these things. So, uh, so in, in our contemporary context, a, an American version of, of this would be, would be greed. What is, it that, what is it that greed says to the individual? You need more. What you have is not enough. You, you know, you have a house, it's really nice, it's pretty, it's lovely, but I wonder what's up on Zillow. Let's click and let's look, because what I have is not enough. You, there's something about idolatry that looks to provide security to the individual. And, and what Paul is saying is, and, and it's a security that's not rooted in faith. And, and so what Paul is saying is, he was like, you guys were enslaved, but there's no reason that's not necessary. How come? Because, well, now you know God. There, there, what he means is you have faith in God. And this was earlier in our scripture reading for today, Jesus' words in John 17, that to know God is to, is to believe that he is and that he sent Jesus Christ into the world. So sometimes the scriptures will say that to know God is to believe in, in him or vice versa. You have a personal knowledge of God. You have a personal relationship with God. But in verse 9... It's as if Paul corrects himself. He's like, you know God, or rather you've been known by God. And there he pulls from this biblical tradition that is, that is, that is so grand and wonderful. So Psalm 1 verse 6 says that, that on the last day, the, the boast of the righteous is, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Our boast is that God knows us. And why is that significant? Well, because he's the creator and he can save and we don't need to look to, and he's saying to them, you don't need to look to created things to finish it off. You don't need to look to created things to provide you security. They can't save. That's not their purpose. There's no reason for it. You can't save yourself, not on your own. And that's why God has come to save you. A number of years ago, when I was first a Christian, I, um, I had, a, I had a, a slogan, um, which was that basically the Christian life is to know God and to make him known to others. And, and there was, 
there was a certain kind of simplicity to that, a certain kind of beauty, a purity to that. Uh, and it was, a, it was a sweet time in, in my Christian life um, just because, you know, I, I, was content with, I was content with the fact that I belonged to the Lord and, and you know, I, was, I just believed that he was going to take care of me and, and I had some responsibility, or not even responsibility, I would probably say I just, just had a desire to share that with other people. And so, um, you know, I had a, a number of conversations with non-Christians. And so in the church tradition that I grew up in, um, you had, we did have Sunday morning church, but you had Sunday night church. Uh, and, you know, some of you uh, are familiar with that. Others of you were like, oh my. Um, but Sunday night church, the other thing that was part of that tradition, now it wasn't, it wasn't official rule or policy, but it was an unofficial rule or policy, was that Sunday night church needed to last longer than Sunday morning church, okay? So it was like, you, you're going to be there for a while. I guess, you know, you had to make sure you really wanted to go. And I always felt compelled to go. And so I would go. And so it was late. And then I would spend time, you know, with Christians or, or whatever. And, you know, we'd hang out and, and, you know, go really late into the evening. So eventually I would start to come home at about 11 o'clock at night. There was a gas station near my house. So I'd pull into the gas station. I needed gas and I walked in. Now I wore... I wore what I, what I refer to as Baptist blues, okay? And if you're not familiar with a Baptist blue is, all, all young Baptist men must have one blue suit. This is, I think, official church document. Um, <laughs> you need to have one Baptist suit. It is your Baptist blues, and therefore you will be accepted before the Lord, or something like that, I think is the language. And so I come in with my, my Baptist blue suit on, now I have a Baptist blue. That, you know, look, these are the Baptist blues now. And uh, the theologian uh, Bob Dylan said, oh, the times they are a-changing. Um, but I went in with my Baptist blues on at, you know, 1130 at night. And there was this gentleman who was tattooed from the top of his head, probably to the bottom of his feet. And he said, did you just get out of church or something? And I said, yes, actually I did. And uh, he said, I used to go to church. I said, oh, okay, great. And so there was nobody else there. Uh, and so he invited me to stick around and talk with him. It started a series of conversations between myself and this um, young man. And they were really were good and wonderful conversations. I come to find out he was religious in nature. He, um, he worshipped. Um, I said to him, it sounds like you're a pagan, because he said to me that he worshipped... Um, um, the trees and the streams and the, and the fields. And, and by that, I meant it more in a, in a technical sense, not in a hateful sense. Um, and he said, no, I, I wouldn't call it paganism. He was like, I don't worship the objects. I worship the spirits that control the objects. I said, okay. And so we, we would have these conversations. He, he acknowledged over the course of time, because we would kind of talk about what was the difference between us. And he acknowledged that he worshiped, in my understanding, and he agreed with this, that he worshiped created things. Whether it was the spirits or the object, whatever it was, they were created things. And I, I said to him, I remember having a conversation with him once, and I, 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 had, I had my other Baptist blue. It was my very large blue King James Bible. <laughs> and I had it open to Colossians 1, and I said, you know, here it says that Jesus Christ is the creator. He's preeminent, and he has made all things in heaven and on earth. And I was inviting him to worship the creator and not the creature. <clears throat> and, and to be honest, I thought I made a pretty good case for it. And, uh, and he rejected it. 
He, he actually acknowledged what I had to say was true, but he couldn't go there. And then he started sharing with me suffering that he had taken place in, in belonging to a church and, and how rough it was on him. And, it, and here's what happened is that those encounters spun me out. Um, they, were, they were good and wonderful, um, but it spun me out because then I lost touch with the guy. So then I started thinking to myself, and, and, and one of the messages that I had to him was like, you know, created things can't save you. You know, you, you just, it, they just, it just doesn't have the ability to save you. It's going to fall short. That's not what they're for. So then I worked really hard to try to understand. Okay, I need to, clearly I need to understand better what it is this guy believes. Clearly I need to understand better how it is to communicate to somebody in a way that they'll understand. And so I gave myself to, to reading books. I read a lot of evangelism books. I went to evangelism conferences. I went to evangelism trainings. I gave myself to all these things that were made by somebody so that I could learn how better to communicate the gospel to somebody so that they would be saved. And it took me to a weird place. I was exhausted. I was perplexed. I didn't have fruitful conversations. Because I always felt like that I, I never really said enough. Even though, and so, because I didn't really say enough, I need to get some more information. Some, somebody surely has made some document. Somebody has surely made some book. Somebody surely came up with something that will help me in my state so that I can communicate the gospel to somebody else so that they can be saved. And I was discouraged and perplexed. Now, my message to that man was, created things can't save you. You can't do this on your own. You need God to save you. And yet, I didn't even realize that I was drifting away from the from the simplicity of that message, which is created things, books, conferences, trainings, words, myself. They can't save me. And I know that I, as a created man, can't save somebody else. And the fact of the matter is, is it's completely unnecessary. How come? <laughs> well, because... That's not my job. It's completely unnecessary because it's God's job to save people. And guess what? Whenever I embrace that fact, it, it, removes, it removes the need to be able to say the right thing or to perform the right way or to meet all these conditions that I've encountered in books or in trainings or in whatever. No, I don't have to do that. I can embrace the freedom and I can relate to another person with total freedom and total self-abandonment is to say, you know what? If I mess this up completely, it doesn't even matter why because the grace of God is greater than Travis's witnessing sins. It's completely unnecessary. And when we embrace the fact that, you know what? God knows me and he knows how short I am. He knows, he, knows, he knows all my shortcomings and my failings. Guess what? It enables God to be God and to save people. And that's his job and not my job. Let us be a church that we commit ourselves. We commit ourselves to embrace this truth, which is, it is God who saves people. 
Let us embrace that truth now because there's always temptations. Do you see that in the passage? There's always temptations to drift away from that. There's something, there's something satisfying about the, the lie that you can do something to save someone else. It gives you some degree of control over them, but it also gives you some degree of control over who it is that's worthy of saving and who's not. Sounds like an old lie. Sounds like a lie from way back in the garden, which says, no, 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 you can be like God. Let us be a church that says, we commit ourselves to say, I'm not God. Thanks be to God. Second, be known by God opens us to the needs of other people. So Paul continues, and he is getting personal, um, he, he talked about his story then, and, and he, he highlights something, and it was specifically how the Galatians received him, their warm and welcoming stance towards him when he first met them. Look here with me in Galatians 4, verses 13 through 15. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Were, then, is your blessing of me now. I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So Paul says, look, whenever I first met you guys and you, you were embracing the freeness of the grace of God that is found in Christ, you guys received me and I was sick, which there, I mean, you know, here is the, the really the greatest church planner of all times. And guess what? He's sick. And that was God's means of planning this church, his weakness, not his strength. And so he says, look, you guys received me and you guys were willing to sacrifice yourselves for me. Now, he said, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Now, what's significant about that? In American society, um, medical professionals are generally viewed with, um, with some degree of respect and honor. Um, doctors, nurses, uh, and the like. In Roman society, the Romans, the Romans valued power and dominance and strength. And they detested sick people. They detested it. You, you, let your, you, you left uh, sick people to die, or and if you provided any kind of help for them, it was the responsibility of slaves. Marginalized of society stays with the marginalized of society. So the Galatians completely are different than this, and what do they do? They welcome Paul. They, they are glad to receive him. That's what they used to do, but, but now their relationships are changing because there's all these conditions. Now, what causes Christians to be willing to what, what causes Christians to be willing to receive sick people? I was saying to the um, to some of the pastors and the staff the other day that you know, with regards to with regards to the long-standing Christian tradition of 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 being there for people when it is that you're sick. It's it's not necessarily that you're going to be able to build some big platform to do this, okay? 
Um, there's even a, a tendency in, in some pastoral circles is to say, well, you know, we, we regulate that you know, to our congregation and so on and so on. Because we've got these other things to do. <clears throat> Which I have said, and so I say again, yeah, I mean, that would be fine. It's just there's this person named Jesus Christ. I don't know, he, 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 he walks among sick people. You just have this long-standing Christian tradition of receiving people who are sick. So it just seems to me that if you're a Christian, one of the ways that plays out is that when there's a person in need, you open yourself up to them. How come? Is it because it's the right thing to do? We need to do it because it's our duty to do it as Christians. Well, it, to some degree, it is our duty. Do we need to do it because, oh, we, we have the ability to make an impact, change the world? Well, there there is some truth in that as well. When you meet people in the time of, their time of need, you have the ability to change their world to some degree. Do we need to do it because people need us? At times, people may need you more than others. Why? What? But, but here's the thing is, all those things, they, though they're true at one level, they don't have deep roots. Because... If, if the culture says, like, like they did in this day, the culture says that weakness and sickness is, a, is, is something that we, that we want to have nothing to do with, are you going to go against that culture? And, and what's going to cause you to go against the culture? What caused the Galatians to go against the culture? Well, Paul says, the word says that what causes you to receive somebody who's needy is, is the realization, not that you've been through exactly what it is that they've been through, because you haven't, but at the same time, you could look at a person who's in need, who, who has cancer or um, has a heart condition or found out that their, um, their baby needs surgery or whatever it is, and you can say, I care about you, not because I know exactly what you're going through, but because I know what it's like to be needy. And guess what? I was needy once, and Jesus received me. It's like the hymn writer says, out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, goodness and light, Jesus, I come to thee. The Christian can look at another person and say, I know what it's like to be in need, and so I open myself up to you. The Galatians at one time were warm to people in need, but they've grown cold. And the cold is rooted in the condition in the contingencies, in all the regulations, in the duties and the responsibilities that they've imported and now they're importing on other people. Let me ask you this. Who are the people that you're warm to? Who are the people that you are willing to receive as they are, where they are? And then who are the people that you're cold towards? And are there any conditions, are there any conditions in your heart and mind towards those people who you are cold towards? Who are you warm towards and who are you cold towards? And then follow that and see what conditions 
have caused you to be distant from people. The reality is, is we are Christians. We're going to encounter people who are needy at times. And guess what? They may not always respond in the way that we want them to respond. I know for myself, I can be cold towards other people who who do not respond in the way that I want them to respond. Or I've had a long history with you and you've done X, Y, and Z. All conditions and therefore distance. No openness. The fact of the matter is, is I am am known by God. And so because I'm known by God and I didn't do anything to earn or deserve that, I can receive people as they are, where they are. I can open up my heart to them. Third, being known by God moves us to labor for people. So Paul will continue this very personal section of this letter and he gets emotional about these people. Very emotional. Um, and, and, and I know it's a number of years ago, there was, a, there was this, I remember reading this book on pastoral ministry. And it said that, you know, uh, to be a pastor means that you're the leader and you must have some sort of emotional distance from the congregation. And, and I mean no judgment when I say this uh, about those men. I, I I bought into that. I mean, I, I, I started to say in the last service, I would trade all my money in the world to be able to preach like one of those guys, but he wouldn't exchange his skills for the small amount of money that I have. So that, that, wouldn't, be a good, that wouldn't be a fair trade. So um, it's not that I, there's not throwing stones, but you know, I kind of bought into that. And, and then you come here to Paul, and this is what Paul says about this congregation in Galatians 4, 19. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. You think Christian service demands emotional distance based on this example? problem with that assumption is, is one, it assumes you'll be able to protect yourself. So you'll be able to serve other people and then you'll be okay so long as you, you set up the scenario to where you maintain distance. You have too much distance, you're going to be isolated and you'll be hurt. It also assumes that Experiencing hurt is not normal in Christianity or in pastoral ministry. It seems like to me that hurt's part of what we signed up for. It seems like to me that at times it's hurtful to serve people. Does this mean that you, you must enter into a, a problematic situation just to experience hurt? Some sort of weird ascetic thing? No, that's not what I'm saying. But at the same time, it just seems like normal Christianity, like if the, if the most significant Christian of all time was perplexed and overwhelmed and, and hurt, it just seems like that's probably going to happen to us. Like it, it just, it, it's probably what we're signing up for you're not going to be able to get away from hurt. Like if you're, 
you're interested in becoming a member in this church, I want you to know you're going to get hurt. Go to, go to another church. Go to another church that's not going to hurt you. Maybe that's what they'll advertise. Go sign up there. Go sign up to the hurt-free church. Send me an email. Tell me where you've gone. I'll go and sign up. I'll move my membership. But just know that whenever I show up, I expect the pastor to introduce me as this is Travis. And now this is the end of our, our hurt-free church. <laughs> but the reality is, is if you go there, you'll be the end of it. And the, and the truth of the matter is, is that church doesn't exist on this earth. Paul labors, and what does he want? He wants, he wants a church that looks like Jesus. He wants a church that reflects the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, oh, that, that, that Christ would be formed in you. And so he's willing to step into the conflict and the pain to see that Jesus Christ is glorified. He's willing to take a step. Will we be willing to take steps towards engaging conflict, even when it's hurtful? Why would we do that? Why do such a thing? Subject yourself to conflict, even whenever it's hurtful? Probably because that's what God's done for us. I know that because that's what the word teaches. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I know it because it's shown to me in the Lord's Supper. You see, because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he stepped into conflict to betrayal and he tore the loaf and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take eat of it. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and after giving thanks, he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Take, drink of it. Do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat from this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Until he returns. And we will be part of a church where there is no more hurt and there is no more pain. And there will be total open hearts with ourselves towards one another and towards God. If you're a Christian, I invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is marked by a piece of twine. There'll be stations throughout the auditorium and there's gluten-free elements that will be to my left and your right. If you're not a Christian, I ask you to, to honor our tradition. Please do not um, partake of the Lord's Supper, but please take Jesus by faith so that we can prepare you for communion in the future. Let's pray together.